The sun has left and forgotten me. It's dark, I cannot see. Your stories don't define you, but how you tell them will. Hi, I'm your host, Sarah Elkins, Chief Storymaker at Elkins Consulting. And just a quick reminder for our listeners who are looking for jobs and getting ready to be interviewed or in the middle of interviews, our new course, Get Hired Job Interview Storytelling, is available now for $199, which also includes the online course with a small group storytelling practice session. So visit elkinsconsulting.com for more information. Today's guest, Ashadaya really fits in with the whole idea of how our authenticity and identity shifts over time. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that that's what I'm incredibly fascinated by, because authenticity isn't a static fixed thing. Authenticity is really about being comfortable in your skin, understanding your values, no matter how uncomfortable a situation you're in. Asha, thank you so much for joining me today on Your Stories Don't Define You. I can't even tell you how eager I am to get started. Sarah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Well, for our listeners, I always begin with um, asking my guests to share something about themselves that most people don't know about them. And because of your TEDx, people will know about you, especially if, when they look you up after hearing this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, And that gives a really strong glimpse. But I would love for them to have a different kind of perception of you through a story of sharing something that most people don't know about you. So do you have something in your head? Yeah, I think so. Um, I am a very all or nothing person. Like I'm very passionate. And if I find something that I love or am really into, I will go to the ends of the earth and I will live in that space and be so loyal to it or that person. For instance, I used to be, I grew up in Australia. I was born in England and um, I used to be very obsessed with soccer, British soccer. And I was very obsessed with the British team, Manchester United. People are probably familiar with that, but I wasn't just like watching their games. In Australia, my dad and I would wake up at 3 a.m. to watch Champions League matches. And I was just always there. And I would, I would buy magazines, I'd buy T-shirts, stickers, everything. Like I was so obsessed. And eventually that obsession petered out. I mean, that was when I was younger, but that trait of, oh, I found something that I really love and really makes me feel alive and happy, that has followed me throughout my life in my career, in relationships, in hobbies, in advocacy. And so I really love that about myself. And it's also sometimes a little bit embarrassing or, but yeah, that's, that's me. I'm, I'm an all or nothing, very passionate, maybe sometimes even obsessive person, depending on what the thing is that I'm passionate about. I love that. So what do you think makes you switch gears? Like you kind of grew out of the Manchester United phase yeah, uh, because you're young and it was sports and you probably got into something else, but yeah, is it that you've exhausted that passion or is it something else that took its place? Can you think of a particular time when you shifted that? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I was young and funnily enough, the thing that took its place was tennis. I was very <laughs> obsessed with tennis after that, not playing <laughs> tennis, watching tennis. Um, oh. growing, up, growing up in Australia, uh, watching sport is like a religion over there. And I know it is kind of here in the States too, but uh, Australia is a smaller country. The culture is very, very sport obsessed. 
And so I kind of got into that and I was a tomboy and I was always very like ashamed of my body image and very insecure. And so sport was something that made me feel safe and comfortable and made me find a community that didn't put any sort of attention on my physical appearance, if that makes sense. And Mm -hmm. so I think that kind of petered out when, you know, as I grew older, as I started my career in media and really found the things that I was passionate about within me as opposed to a hobby that I could latch onto. And so I think it was a process of me figuring out, oh, this is the kind of personality that I am and it's just a matter of finding the right thing or right things to channel that energy and that passion into a way that's meaningful and productive and long-lasting because I don't want it to sound like, oh, I find something I'm passionate about, but in a few years uh, I won't care. (laughs) only if it's sport maybe, but everything else that I've been passionate about, I've kind of kept that momentum going and found new ways to evolve and and implement it into my life. I love that for so many reasons. Um, one of the things that I share as a StrengthsFinder coach is that you can um, use whatever it is that's your approach to things wherever you want to direct it. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what job you have, you can still find your purpose within wherever you sit. Yeah. And that's basically what you're saying. And it's even in my book, when I talk about finding my why was I had to find my what first, I had to see the pattern in what satisfied me, what brought me that kind of the, the moments of joy and overall satisfaction at any point in my life. And that's what you found was Oh, when I'm really satisfied with life, it's when I'm super passionate about something. But it doesn't not yeah. it doesn't necessarily matter what the passion is, as long as I find it with whatever yeah. I'm doing. Yeah, I often try to tell people, you know, if they ask me, "What's your advice for, you know, a career in media or finding something?" and it's like, "Well, I can't tell you, but start with something that you're passionate about. It could be a job, it could be a hobby, it could be." an experience, like passion is so many different things. But I think when you find that, you find your what and your why, and it's something that you can lead with for the rest of your life in in many different forms. Exactly. Oh, I love that. That's a perfect intro to our (laughs) conversation. So just so that our audience has a a better understanding of who you are and what you do, um, I'm going to ask you to do something that I'm going to explain a little bit. I'm going to ask you to um, tell me what you do without telling me what you do. And what that means is share a story about a recent experience in your work that really demonstrates that passion that you have and, and what you do. Oh, how do I do that? It's like that game of taboo. Like you can't use the word, but you got to say it. (laughs) Well, I can... The way that I do it um, oftentimes is I will remember a recent experience with a client that felt really successful and I'll tell the story. So recently I had a conversation with a client who has um, activator in his top talents and adaptability, which I also have that. And he was telling me about, you know, the search for contentedness. He wants to find his next thing that will bring him contentedness. And I said, okay, let's just reframe that a little bit because that's, not ever going to happen because of your natural talents, you're going to find very long periods of, of challenge and transformation and short periods of contentedness. And once you get into that contentedness, you're going to get bored. So you have to choose to feed that 
rather than sabotage the contentedness. Mm -hmm. And two days later, he sent me the most amazing note about what a freedom that gave him hearing that his search for contentedness was not something that makes sense for him because all his life, he thought something was wrong with him because he'd get into a contentedness place and then sabotage it or change Mm. something. And people are like, why are you changing this? You have everything. So he thought something was broken in him and being able to see it from that perspective just gave him a a freedom that he hadn't experienced before. Wow. That's why I do my work is because he had this, this just huge aha moment that changed how he sees himself in such a positive way. Mm, so that's, that. that's a kind of story that I would share. Okay. I think I have a story. So at uh, the beginning of last year, around March last year, I was interviewing a woman um, about her relationship with her daughter. And I have a daughter as well. She's three now um, and a son as well. And this woman was very nervous and timid to be on camera. The project that I was working on was about her daughter who's 30 and she has nonverbal autism and we really wanted to share this young uh, this young woman's story her name is Siri um and so I was asking the mom um you know just wanted to get to know her because it's as much the story is as much about Siri as it is about her relationship with her mother Swati um they're a family of um, immigrants from India originally the kids were born in the United States and I, you know, I like to start off by asking a bit about like, who are you? Where are you from? You know, kind of laying the foundation of the context of the story. And some people may think that's boring and that's fine. But for me, it's like, you think you're asking what could be an everyday question and then you find those little nuggets. And so we asked, I asked her, um, tell me about what it was like um, sending learning about Siri having autism and sending her to school. And she described this one situation where this is in the 90s, mind you, um, when there wasn't a lot of resources toward autism and in schools. And, you know, this is in the Bay Area in California, very progressive for thinking. And the only school that would take her was this one place where she had to buzz in from the first door and then you'd go in a foyer and then you'd have to buzz into another door and there's a camera on you. So she's in this like waiting area. She would drop her daughter Siri off. She she was about four or five. Um, she would Siri would be screaming and screaming at the top of her lungs. Then Swati would leave the first door, stand in the foyer, still hear her daughter screaming. Leave the second door. So now she's outside the building and she would hear the door buzz and shut. She could still hear her daughter screaming, screaming. And Swati says she did not, she sat in the parking lot for hours because she thought if something went wrong, I want to be there and just say, yeah, I'm here. I'll I'll pick her up. And she said that it was like dropping my daughter off at a prison. I mean, this is like the only school that would take a daughter who had autism and, you know, people didn't have the resources to help her. And she was so traumatized by that. And even though that was about 20 or 30 years ago now, she was crying her heart out when she was sharing this story and you know she was like I'm so sorry for crying or like why are you crying this is this is part of your story and you know to see her relationship now with her daughter where she's at and all the amazing things that 
Siri has been able to conquer and achieve. She just moved out for the first time um, as a young adult with nonverbal autism. That's a big, big deal. But hearing Swati recall that story and seeing how it's still like right there in her chest, you know, it's on the tip of her brain where she recalls it and it just brings back all that trauma. I mean, that's so trauma. And I'm listening to her going, I don't know what to ask next because I'm just imagining myself in that situation with my daughter. Like, what if I had to drop her off at a what is supposed to be a childcare centre or school that looks like and sounds like a prison with the door being buzzed and the camera is trained on you and you're standing in the foyer and people dragging your screaming and kicking child away from you and the only thing you can do is stand there. And so anyway, that was just like, you know, being in that moment, listening to her talk, it was just, I felt very honoured that she wanted to share that uh, with me and with us and made me realise that, oh, this is this is why I do what I do. Oh, my gosh. You unlocked this trauma for her. She probably thought about it regularly, but yeah. wasn't able to share that story. She, she has probably never shared no. it in a public setting in in ways like this. I mean, I'm sure she's shared you know, bits and pieces of her story along the way, but she's been so hyper-focused on raising her daughter and getting her help and being 100% focused on her. And she's got two other children as well. Um, But having these moments locked away inside her just to survive emotionally and mentally and physically, to be able to bring that out of her in a way that she didn't feel burdened with that felt you know, truly incredible. And, you know, it was a privilege to hear that and have her want to share that with the world. Have you found that when, when we share a story like that, that that release actually changes the story? It, It reframes it in the context of the current success. And I ask that because that's what I've experienced in my work as a podcaster, because those are the kinds of stories that I draw out in people and um, have you had that experience as well, where it just shifts, kind of reframes the story and gives them some peace about it? Yeah, and I think it really gives you a different perspective on the overall story and who the person is, because often the often the cases where, and I know I do this too, and I'm trying to change where people say, "Oh, who are you?" or "Tell us your story." And, you give the highlight reel. You 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 know you give the abridged version of uh, version of your resume or your bio, but often those aren't who you are. That's not your story. Those are just your accomplishments or achievements. There's so many things in between the lines that we often don't talk about. Like you know, I could rattle off my resume, tell you all the TV networks that I've worked at and the book that I've written, or this, that, and the other. But um, in there, I haven't written that I came from a very closed off conservative evangelical community or that I went through a divorce at the age of 29 in a new country living far away from my parents like those are the things that are more interesting to hear about and gives you a sense of who I am more so than I did this and I achieved that I went to that college like those are okay to learn to know about but that's not that's not your story Ashley, you are speaking my language in every possible way. And that's why I asked you to introduce yourself that way. And what I found also is that the stories we tell about other people often say more about us than they do about the other person. Yeah, it says what resonates with us. Exactly. So your story, what I kept 
seeing in you. And unfortunately, our listeners won't be able to see the video, although we may do some clips. Um, what I saw in you was the mother in you, your um, kind of a surrogate experience as a mother listening to this other mother's story mm. and that realization that my daughter's only three now, but when she's 30, I'm still going to have stories like that, that will rip mm. my heart out when yeah. I tell them. Yeah. That's and it's what terrifying. I was seeing in you. That's <laughs> I def definitely. I mean, in my role, in my work, with my work hat on, you know, you're very professional, but in my mind, it's terrifying as a mother because in the back of my mind every day is a thought that, oh, crap, I am responsible for these little human beings. And they're still very young, so that means they're going to have lots more experiences and maybe some of them will be not so great. And it's like, oh, crap, how am I going to deal with it? How am I going to shield <laughs> them and protect them and be the one that's like, yeah, it's very terrifying and 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 invigorating in all at once. So to hear her story as a mother go, you know, through all that trauma, it's a lot and also empowering to know that she's still here, she's still doing her thing and, you know, she raised an incredible human being. And so then it gave me hope, like, all right, well, she went through things that I probably will never go through because I don't have a child with autism. But at the same time, look at how she's raised her daughter, Siri, and, okay, then, then, then there's hope for others who are in the same situation that there is light at the end of the tunnel. So that was and, a bit of a tangent. So, so. Yeah. No, it wasn't at all because um, what I'm hearing about your story is that you're starting to understand that you may actually be part of the trauma to your child and still be able yeah. to have a relationship with them and raise them as successful adults, regardless of what their mental and, and emotional capacity is. Yeah. Yeah. So, definitely. and I can tell you as a, as a parent of two boys who are 21 and 24 that yes, um, <laughs> there were so many times where I would think, oh my gosh, I am the worst parent on the planet. Mm. And, and then the next day it would happen and I would have an opportunity to be the best parent on the planet. Mm. So, and they're so um, forgiving the when they're young and well, you think so, <laughs> well, <laughs> but they maybe remember things, they do. I guess when they're they three do. before they remember things, but yeah. Um, yeah, but then the stories we tell them are reminders. And I, I think it's really important that I share those stories with my boys about things that I felt like I did wrong, mm. where I'll say, this is what happened in my memory. And I know our memories are fallible, but this is the story that I tell myself and, um, we are all human with the capacity for failure and, and mess ups. And I'm still, I'm your mom, but I'm by no means perfect. And they completely have gotten that. And, and I think what it does is it gives them permission to fail. It gives them permission mm -hmm. to own when they've made a mistake and still be able to recover from that and try yeah. something new the next day. So yeah, I feel like that's something more important to model than perfection or success or, yeah, all of those capitalistic ideals, I guess. It's just those those really human traits that you can be and have permission to be human every day. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I'm still like, I still have that little chill, the, the hairs on the back of my neck up from the story about Siri. Yeah. 
and and of course all the memories flooding of the things that I might have caused trauma in my mm, children. Ooh, we'll we'll talk about something else. <laughs> that is too painful as a mm. parent. Um, and yet, when you see your children grown, like my twenty four year old has this huge beard, <laughs> ridiculous beard, and imagining your little baby growing up to be mm. much taller than you, super strong, yeah. a big beard, and those humongous feet. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the things that I still am puzzled by even after, mm-hmm. you know, 24 years old, but yeah. So let's get back to your stories. You, you briefly touched on the fact that you grew up in this evangelical household and, and I know from your work that you talk a lot about the, the, the reason the polarization of pro-choice versus pro-life is such a misunderstanding of what we're really dealing with. Mm. Um, And I would love to hear a a moment in time when you realize that, that there's so much more to this and just talking about it as black and white is never going to resolve our, our human, particularly women's um, health issues and, that uh, shame that comes with everything reproductive in women. Yeah, the the word shame is such a um, it's such a powerful weapon in a bad way that it keeps people hidden in silence, not wanting to talk about things that are very common. Abortion is very common. Miscarriage is very common. Infertility issues are very common. Like all these reproductive issues. We think they're so taboo, but then people start talking about them. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, it's one in four women, one in seven women. Everyone has these issues. It's like, okay, well, why, why are we believing these very clickbaity political slogans that are thrown out there? And so that was one of the things that made me realize that these things that we say, pro-choice, pro-life, anti-choice, um, for use of a better word, actually, a lot of the the reproductive rights movement leaders do not use the word pro-life anymore because it's they realize that these words have often have meanings attached to them that don't exemplify the full situation. And so even saying the word pro-choice, it's like, well, it's much more than that. And that feels like a very political slogan or it's talking about a very specific legal right, but it has to be much more than that. And so the way that I realize that it's more of a gray area, it's more nuanced, it's more complex like the people who make these decisions don't just make them on a whim or for very black and white reasons that we're taught to believe it's they're bringing their whole humanity and everything in their lives to the table when they're making these decisions and the thing that made me realize that was being part of this church being very very ultra conservative in its political leanings and they were very vocal about that from the pulpit which looking back now it's like Oh gosh, that's so disappointing, really, um, in a lot of ways, especially for youth. And I say that because a lot of the young women and young men would, you know, they'd be on stage or at youth camps and leadership events talking about being pro-life and how tragic abortion was and blah, 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 all these kind of things, talking in a general sense rather than from a personal point of view. They're just repeating these things that were taught. But then... Um, a girl from our church 
got pregnant. Uh, and then you would hear more of these stories. And I heard more of these stories and what a girl got pregnant and she, um, for some reason, everyone knew what had happened. And her first, and she, she's shared her story publicly. Her first thing was, oh my God. She probably didn't say, oh my God, because she was really just, she probably said, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you know, you know, if you're even, if you're next <laughs> evangelical, you know, she yes. probably said, oh my gosh, um, I need to just have an abortion get rid of my mistake, quote, unquote, God will forgive me and I can move on with my life. And I remember her telling me that and I was like, whoa, hold on a second. You're giving yourself that grace, that's great, but yet you're standing on that stage publicly telling other people that they should not be doing the things that you're giving yourself permission for. And I was like, there is so much to unpack here, like the internalised shame and guilt but the knowledge that she knew exactly where to go, exactly which clinic to go to, she knew that she trusted the clinic. Um, she knew that she was able to get the money for the pills and did what she had to do, um, but she didn't end up going through with it. She made the choice, the choice mm -hmm. to keep the baby. Um, but again, even all of these things are exhibiting that she gave herself agency and freedom to make these choices. And the point is not really that she kept the baby. The point is that it's so much more complex and nuanced than you think. And although she still considers herself conservative and she would call herself pro-life, I know that she has a much more empathetic uh, approach to this because she knows her own story. And there's and a lot of people know her story. So her thing is now, well, this is what I believe, but you don't know anyone's story. And she's a single mother um, and she's raised a beautiful daughter. And um, it's it just made me realise, oh, there is so much more to this than what we're told. Like, you know, just all these things like, oh, women use these, you know, crazy young sluts are just using abortion as birth control. I'm like, well, birth control is actually cheaper than abortion. So if you would prefer birth control, can we talk about that? And, of course, that's a whole other issue. Definitely. Um but, yeah, it just made me realise how complex these decisions are and also how connected it is to what kind of sex education are you getting, how were you raised and what were you taught about sex and bodies and consent and autonomy and all of these things. Um, do you even know what a pregnancy entails? Do you know what an abortion pill is, What a, the difference between um, a birth control pill, the morning after pill, an abortion pill? Um, you know, do you, uh, you know, all of those things like, your financial status and 60% of the, the people who get abortions in America are already parenting. So it, this is a motherhood issue. And, you know, what kind of job do they have? Do they have access to support and childcare and paid leave? And, you know, do they have regular access to a GP or a doctor, um, you know, or are they being kicked off Medicare because they're in a state that is not expanding it to single mothers or young mothers and, you know, there's so many things that are connected to mental health is another big one. There's so many things that are connected to the issue of abortion that made me start to research and think about it more. And then it was almost like overnight, it's like, well, I can't be anti-choice because even if you could say to yourself, well, I would personally never get an abortion, that's fine. But the where we go wrong is saying, oh, well, I believe this and so I want to champion legislation or a movement or a culture 
that stops other people from making the best decisions for their lives. I mean, let's think about what would go through a mother's brain and situation that having an abortion is the right decision for her. There are probably so many things she's thinking of, the children she already has at home, what her financial situation is. And it's once we start to think about individual stories and how there are so many factors involved, there's no way we can generalise it anymore. But I think that's one of the things that the anti-choice movement doesn't want us to do. They want us to think about it in terms of numbers or statistics, incorrect ones or slogans, as opposed to this is a whole human being with a whole story and a whole life and all sorts of complexities and flaws. And then you, and when you're able to see that person, you can see yourself reflected in them. You could see yourself making the same decision potentially. And then all of a sudden it's not black and white. And so all of that to say, that's kind of what I want to do as a storyteller um, as a producer in making these projects that show women's stories and people who have abortions why, not even why, but like who they are and mm-hmm. how they approach this issue because the why isn't as important as knowing that it needs to be legal and that it could be anyone's decisions. It could be yours one day and you don't know it or it could be your mother's or your sister's or your own daughter's and yeah, so I think this, uh, that's my goal. And, and I don't necessarily want to be like, I want everyone to change their mind. I just want people to see that these decision makers are just like us and are whole human mm-hmm. beings and they deserve, yeah, they deserve the it's, freedom and dignity mm-hmm. to make that decision by themselves without any other influence if they don't want it. So two things popped into my head. First, what was the first thing you did when you realized that? And this is before you were a mother? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Before you were a mother, yeah. you, you had this almost overnight. I mean, it was, I, I call it a dimmer switch yeah. and all of a That's sudden a description <laughs> that night, um, the light comes on full bright, or you wake up in the morning and the sun is in your face going, holy shit, I'm in the wrong yeah. place. Um, <clears throat> what was the, do you remember kind of the first time you talked out loud about the shift in your brain or what you did like, what was the mm. first thing you did when you realized that? Did you try to find somebody you could talk to about it? I think, well, g- going back to the traits that I mentioned earlier about being very passionate and all in, I just went all in on research and educating myself. I was hungry to like learn about stories, read articles. And I would, I, I still have it. I have a bookmark folder on my browser of abortion it's called abortion articles that's the folder name abortion articles and they're from uh 2012 i would say um 2012 2013 and i just would read these articles and especially if they were a personal story from someone who had come from a community that i had come from and just really sharing that nuance rather than just the statistics but even the statistics i wanted to learn i wanted to know about so that i had some sort of context because in the church that I was from it was never encouraged to go research for yourself this is what we believe but go research it's this is what what it is and that's it there was Mm -hmm. no mention of the actual data of who gets abortions who are the majority why you know the states and all this kind of stuff one in four women in America before the age of 45 majority are mothers Um, a lot of them are people of faith um, you know, faith is not synonymous with being 
anti-abortion. It's There are a lot of people of faith who believe um, in the right to abortion and that isn't talked about enough. And so I went all in on the research and I think I would talk to people um, a lot a lot of times on social media like Facebook and have stupid arguments. Um, Facebook <laughs> and social media is never the place to like no. change someone's mind. <laughs> and I learned that probably way too late. Um, and so I, those were the the most quote-unquote out loud conversations that I had and it would make me really angry and but then I kind of I just kind of focused on what my goal was and refined what my goal was and that was not to change people's minds I mean sure in an ideal world people having the same journey that I did would be so great and you know allow for a much more um, empathetic culture when it comes to abortion but more importantly for me was being in a space where it, it wasn't about being antagonistic, it was about, okay, well, this is what I think now. How can I be the most use? How can I help? And how can I, Where? what is my fit now? And so for me, it's being a storyteller or amplifying other people's stories, giving them the platform, giving them the space to share, filming their stories, um, writing about it, um, all of those kind of things. And so once I realized what I was able to do with that passion and channel it in the right way with this newfound light bulb moment in my life, um, it made me much more happy because it wasn't about, oh, I'm gonna, I need to debate everyone. I need to have all these arguments. It was just like none of that made, made me happy and maybe for some people it does, but I wanted to be in a space of positivity and doing something creative. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how I went on my journey. But I, I don't remember the first out loud conversation. I, I do know that my TEDx talk, I, I would think to myself, like, this is one of the biggest times where I'm really putting it out there in a, in a public way while talking about the issue as a whole. And, um, yeah, anytime that I got to do things like that, like talk about this is how I used to think and now this is where I am and this is what I'm doing with my passion, um, it made me feel much more empowered because I knew that I had a goal rather than, oh, I just changed my mind on something. Mm -hmm. I I think the biggest contradiction that I'm hearing in terms of um, being an ambassador for for our people, (laughs) women in general, um, is that conversation when you have it with somebody who is um, anti-choice but has had that experience, either has had an abortion and has forgiven themselves, but now they're anti-choice for other women, Mm. they're still voting and they're still voting for people who are doing the damage to our body autonomy freedom. And that's, that's how I think of it as opposed to narrowing it to one part of our healthcare, our Mm. our choices about whether or not to have a baby, Um, but body autonomy across the whole, it is, it, it needs to be mine. <laughs> yeah. it, it can't be somebody else's choice, no matter what my decisions are. Um, whether you're having breast augmentation or breast reduction surgery, or right. um, whether you're going to have a, a hysterectomy or getting your tubes tied, yeah, all of those yeah. decisions that we make, they have to be our own. And so yep. that's the thing that I keep coming back to is how do we how do we have this conversation to a point where people realize that they're voting against their own self-interest? Yeah, I mean, it happens a lot. Hard. It happens it all the time. 
It's really hard. It's 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 one of those things that I don't know the answer to other than share, people sharing their stories is the most powerful way to disrupt the noise, you know, maybe even for one person. And I think connecting one-on-one with people is the best way to break through what seems like an insurmountable wall. Um, yeah, it, it's really it's really shameful because the woman that I mentioned whose story I shared about, you know, she made the decision to have an abortion, then she changed her mind, you know, voting a straight Republican ticket, for instance. Well, you're voting for legislators who do nothing about school shootings and you you have a school-aged child in a country where in many states gun laws are getting more and more lax and that is terrifying for me as a mother. Um, just the thought of that should make any quote-unquote pro-life person be pro-gun sense laws. Like it, it just boggles my mind that they're all about like, no, don't do this, don't do that. But when it comes to guns, it's like, oh, give me my freedom, let me do what I want, or vaccines, like my body, my choice. Like you're co-opting a slogan knowing full well the origins of it and now you're saying it for something else when it's convenient to you. Well, okay, don't take a vaccine but then be consistent with your beliefs and that's where it just really irks me. And if I think too long about it or if I focus too much, it just makes me angry and so I always try to find ways where I could channel that anger into something positive and it's usually donating to an organization or amplifying an article that I know is really helpful, or, mm-hmm. you know, something like that, supporting someone in the space where they're doing great work. Um, but yeah, the, the juxtaposition is, is incredibly hard. And, and even you mentioned, you know, bodily autonomy as, as a whole, I had a friend who she knew, she always knew she never wanted to have kids. Um, and she, in her twenties, had gone to see multiple doctors saying, I want to get my tubes tied. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're going to change your mind. You're going to meet a husband and he's going to want kids and you're going to change your mind. She's like, "Um, do I not have a say in this? Like maybe I'll meet someone and I still have a say that I don't want kids or maybe they don't want kids. And she had to see multiple doctors. All of them denied her. They said, we will not do it because of these reasons, but also you have to be 30 or 35, um, don't quote me on that, but it's something like at least 30 or 35 before they would do it. So what happened? She got to the age that she needed to be and she got the tubal ligation, she got her tubes tied and she followed through with everything that she wanted, she knew about her life. And she's in a beautiful relationship with a man now. I think she's married or engaged and it just reminds me of just how little trust there is in women um that we like there's this idea excuse me there's this pervasive cultural idea that oh we don't know what we want with our life so we need someone to decide for us and (laughs) you know silly little woman you need a man to you know to show you sense but I think once we give space for us to make those decisions and also permission to fail it's okay to fail and make the wrong decisions and work out how to get back on track like all of those things we deserve to have in our lives whether it's about our body our reproductive decisions or our careers or anything you know and I think that's what's really lacking it's not just abortion it's not just birth control it's everything across the board like do we trust as do we as a culture trust women when we say oh we don't want kids or do we trust her when she say oh I was assaulted 
and goes before a judge or tells the police that she was assaulted? Do we trust her or do we say, okay, but how much did you have to drink? You know, all of these things, they tie into each other and it starts Mm -hmm. to become really, really scary. And so we have to, for me, it's like how do we find ways to chip away at that system Um, and there's things each one of us can do and, um, yeah, it's it's a really big insurmountable, seemingly insurmountable cultural objects to chip away at mm-hmm. called the patriarchy but it's it's a it's a slow burn and i think it's it's we're getting there the more conversations we can have like this and raising consciousness and raising awareness mm-hmm. and offering and raising ways. our children in yes. in that way i yeah. know um i was i was so um i wasn't surprised but honored and uh, appreciative for my older son on his 24th birthday, I noticed on Facebook that his fundraiser was for Planned Parenthood. And um, he is a gun rights advocate advocate oh, wow. here in Helena, Montana, which okay. is, um, it's a whole interesting conversation. Again, mm. he's a full person. He's a whole person yeah. raised, born in Washington, DC, raised in Montana by two, definitely on the left liberal side of the, the spectrum, the political yeah. spectrum. Um, and his comment when he was posting about raising funds for Planned Parenthood was because I don't think anyone can tell anyone else what to do with their body. Wow. That's really interesting. Wow. So I think, um, especially as a mother, even if you have this friend who is going to vote all Republican, being able to have the conversations with her children about why, as opposed to just doing it and telling them you have to do it too, or, you know, raising them in a place, like, as you spoke about uh, from the pulpit, people telling you what to do and telling you not to ask questions. Yeah. Don't ask questions. Just, just believe, just have faith. And um, I think that's part of why it was important to me, even though I'm not a religious person to raise our children in a Jewish household is Mm. because the Jewish tradition is to ask questions that is, mm, I love they, that. they say that the, the, the old joke is if you put um, a dozen rabbis in a room and ask them a question, you'll get 13 different opinions <laughs> 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 because it's all about questioning and, and doing yeah, your own. That's beautiful. That's the yeah. way it should be because we're all so different and we all have different perspectives and that makes life interesting having different approaches. Yes, you know? but we also lose control. And I, I, yeah. I know that that's kind of the the grasp there and a, hopefully a dying gasp of the I control. So, so yeah. let's, let's turn back around to stories. I'm sure we've, um, we could go on more about what is wrong with people trying to control other people's bodies and minds in, in a lot of ways, but I, I'm, I'm especially curious about when you, um, when you started to put together your TED talk about this complexity of the conversation, that it's not a simple, yes, I believe in it. No, I don't believe in it. When you were putting that together, did you have fear? Did you have, I know you go full on into passion. And so you were doing all the research so you could provide real statistics and stories, specific stories about people going through these complex, complicated decisions what was something that you thought about before and then maybe how you came back to it after you did the TED Talk? Honestly, I can't remember whether I felt fear around the content of the talk because I was so focused on 
memorizing a 12-minute talk. <laughs> and so yeah. in the months that I had leading up to um, the event in Illinois, I was literally every single day I was practicing, practicing, practicing. So I didn't really have a lot of space to think, oh, what is the reaction going to be? I just knew that it was something I really wanted to say and it's not a goal that I had on my bucket list, like I wanted to do a TEDx talk. And so I think afterward was the moment even in that um, auditorium when I, where I gave the talk, I had women coming up to me sharing their stories because um, I talked about, you know, maternal mortality and maternal health as well and how all these issues are interconnected. And, and multiple women came up to me and said, you know, I almost died when I was giving birth and these, this happened to me and no one cared and there wasn't, there isn't that whole political outcry about this common maternal issue as opposed to abortion. I'm like... Wow, it just reminded me that there's a reason why I felt called to do this talk and talk about the issue in a way that I wanted to talk about. And I haven't read the YouTube comments and I don't want to read the YouTube comments because we all know what the comment section on YouTube is all about. And what really mattered to me were, were those real interactions that I had with people and even um, from other people who've seen the talk online and written to me and said, oh, wow, this is really amazing. I also come from the same background. Thank you for sharing this and speaking out loud. And, um, yeah, I've made some really interesting and really great friends from them seeing that talk and connecting with me and wanting to talk and, and collaborate in some way. And so, yeah, it's been really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't remember. All I remembered was I wanted to get the talk right. I want to be perfect. I want it to be word perfect. Mm -hmm. Remember all these I think I had like three or four pages of copy that I had written that I wanted to memorize and I did it. And I think after doing it, I was like, oh my God, that is such a relief. I <laughs> went off without a hitch. Now I can take on all the rest of the emotional, you know, reactions and all that kind of stuff. So it was more afterward that I was tuned into the reaction of it. Wow. That's incredible. I, I think a lot about, um, what is going to be the reaction and what do I want to come out of it? And that's why I asked that question. Mm. And the afterward, I totally understand that feeling of relief that it's yeah. just, Oh, thank Ooh, goodness. I did. And whatever, whatever happens happens. But at this point, yeah. this was my goal. And I, I met that goal. I can definitely appreciate that. And um, the reason we met was because you had posted a celebratory post on LinkedIn about having reached a fundraising goal through Kickstarter yeah. for a project. And I was so excited for that project. And I would love for you to share with our audience what started the Kickstarter and um, what were you celebrating? Yeah, so I'm working on a short documentary called Someone You Know, and it shares the stories of three women in the United States who have had abortions later in their pregnancy and the barriers they faced along the way, oops, sorry, to getting the care that they needed. These are these stories are heartbreaking, powerful, eye-opening, you know, really showing people what happens, you know, later in pregnancy, who the typical later abortion patient is and really, really amazing stories. And so I have gotten a few grants along the way to fund different aspects of the documentary. And so I wanted to do a Kickstarter to raise more money. Um, there's going to be a lot of animation. Um, so as the, with the interview footage of each woman 
as they're talking and describing their experiences, there's going to be a lot of animation. So that's what I was raising money for. Um, the film was originally filmed in 2020. We filmed it during COVID and we did it all virtually. So we sent each woman and the experts, we interviewed a doctor and an activist, we sent them an iPhone 11 camera and a little tripod set up and we interviewed them over Zoom. Uh, it was really a really unique way to film something at the time, obviously, and the initial goal was to release it before the 2020 presidential election to really push back on some of the ugly um, anti-abortion rhetoric that Trump was talking about and other Republicans. That timeline shifted a little bit and the original production company that had hired me to produce it, they then decided last minute that they didn't have the bandwidth for it or budget, so they kind of shelved it, but then the guy who ran the company said, do you want the footage? Do you want to make it into a film? And I said, yes. And so this was early 2021 now at this point. And so I had the footage and I started working with an editor, putting it together and decided I want to use animation. I I could either do reenactments, go back and film the interviews again in person um, and raise more money, or I could do animation. And I hadn't worked with animation before, so I wanted to do that. Little did I know, it's probably the most expensive thing. <laughs> it is. It's really expensive. Really expensive. <laughs> um, but I, I'm, I'm glad I'm in it now. I'm doing it. Um, and so that's why I did the Kickstarter in October last year to raise money. Um, I had been able to, the grants that I had gotten enabled me to make a trailer with the animation and work with an editor as far as I had gotten and also an illustrator to make the poster. So I knew I needed... Um, a certain amount of money to raise for the to do the animation on the full documentary, as well as complete um, sound mix and color correction and and a bit of music. Um, so that's where I'm at right now. I'm working with my animation director. She's based out of Brazil and she's phenomenal. Um, and the people she works with are phenomenal too. And uh, we're putting the storyboard together and we're hopefully we're aiming to have the film released in June. Um, that may be a little bit ambitious, but that's my goal. And if not, it will be released after that. It is going to be released at some point, but I'm just working on it in between other jobs and as I, you know, get the money to do so. And and so to be able to reach the funding goal was a big deal because it was the same time as the midterms last year. It's a topic that some people think of as controversial. Um, the crowdfunding world, especially Kickstarter, is in a lot of ways, it's really about products or um, new experiences or comics or things like that. It's not really about short films or about about abortion. And so that was a risk in itself. But I got support from the people that I knew would support me um, and from totally different people that I hadn't expected. Um, and then I didn't get support from people that I thought I would in other ways. And so mm-hmm. it was. it's a whole tumultuous roller coaster experience doing crowdfunding but the main goal for me was to be able to continue working on this documentary and sharing these stories and so that's where I'm at right now oh that's so exciting and I at, before we wrap up that is something that I think about a lot is who shows up and who doesn't show up when you expect it and um as we spoke just before we started recording this episode I said um I have noticed in in my experience with friends who have either lost to children or lost their spouse or or lost a a child or spouse or um, had a diagnosis that was 
frightening and had to go through um, major, major medical issues. And the people who show up for them are rarely the ones that they anticipate. Mm. I mean, you expect certain friends to show up and they just kind of ghost you and you wouldn't even have thought their name out loud or even in your head. Um, They're the ones that show up with food and to take you out for coffee or just to sit and listen with you. And um, I found that same thing happened when I was doing a a pre-order for my book. I remember being surprised at who didn't buy my book and Mm -hmm. then being even more surprised by the people who did. A lot of strangers um, pre-ordered my book and people that I am peripherally connected to that, that bought multiple copies of it. And then I'm looking at my, my close family members that some of them didn't buy a book. And I remember going, how is that a thing? It was $20. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, support me because you love me. (laughs) Yes, exactly. You don't even have to read it. (laughs) Just buy the book. Exactly. And, and for me, what that changed is now when I have a friend or family member doing something like this, even if it's not my area of interest, I will buy it. Like when mm-hmm. my aunt's husband um, published a couple books, I did buy one of his books, even though it's not the style of fiction that I normally would read, but mm-hmm. I bought it. And then I gave it to somebody else so they could write a review because it, it wasn't, I I won't write a review for something that I um that I don't love or that isn't my style or, you know, doesn't fit my brand. Um, But I will definitely make sure somebody who will love it will have it so they can write the review. Right. I'm not going to be false about it. Yeah. And have you done that now? Like now that you've been through this, has that changed how you behave toward other people that are doing things like publishing books or working on films or whatever? Yeah, um, definitely. It makes me realize how important that little bit of support or encouragement is because I know when I receive it, it can just brighten my whole day and make me feel like, all right, I'm not an idiot for doing what I'm doing. I'm just going to keep going another day. I've got, I've, I've got another day in me. Let's do this. And so, yeah, with, with the Kickstarter, as well as my book, talking about books, when I release my book, um, it's called Today's Wonder Women, Everyday Superheroes Who Are Changing the World. And you can just find it at todayswonderwomenbook.com. I released it on March 18, 2020. So the worst oh, release day. International in Women's recent, Day. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it was when um, COVID started and oh. shut down in the United States. Yes. And I was I literally. Mine was the 31st of May. So oh, I hear you. I was in the yeah. same boat. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It was. And I was just about to start doing a tour, like to press tour to New York and Arizona right. and D.C. and <laughs> I got as far as all the LA shows and that was it. And I'd paid all this money to a publicist and it was just really heartbreaking. And so for me, it was like reaching out to my friends, like, please help me spread the word. Even if you can't buy the book, just please share it. And some did and some didn't. But then I remember getting, and still to this day, get messages or posts on Instagram from people who tag me and say, oh, I read this book. It's great. I'm like, oh my gosh, you read my book. This is awesome. And I um, recently had a family member who bought 12 and gave them to her colleagues and some of her students. She's a teacher. Oh. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is awesome. And so, yeah, it's just really wonderful. Actually, I've had a few friends that have done that who work with students or with colleagues that they want to share it with and share some empowering stories of women. And so they bought a bunch. I'm like, 
It's just really wonderful. Someone who I met on Twitter bought some for her students and she mailed them to me so that I could write a note and then I mailed them back to her and she could give them to them. And I've never met her in real life, but she's just a champion of the work that I'm doing and I really appreciate her and her advocacy. And so, yeah, I think it's it's really important to just, even when you think you may not get the reaction you're going to get, if you feel strongly about something, put it out there because you just never know who it's going to resonate with. So that's that's my approach to things now. It's like, oh, well, I had all these grand plans, going to go to New York and D.C. I was going to be amazing on the Today Show and then COVID hit and so that didn't happen. And But I'm still here, still talking about the book and so, yeah. Well, I am going to buy a book as soon as we finish this conversation because I had yeah. not purchased it yet, but I did watch the TED Talk. And um, for our listeners, what's the best place to follow you and find your information? Yeah, so you can go to my website. It's www.ashadaya.com um, and you can check out my, I'm on social media. I'm on Instagram and Twitter just with my name at Ashadaya, A-S-H-A-D-A-H-Y-A. On my website, you can find out information about the documentary projects I'm doing, the podcast series, the filmmaker podcast series I host, um, the advocacy work I do. And then, yeah, you can find my book at todayswonderwomenbook.com and there's an audible version and a hard copy version. And, yeah, that that's me. Please feel free to get in touch if you have a story that you want to share and a place to amplify it. Perfect. Perfect. And for our listeners, you will find all of these links and all of the information at elkinsconsulting.com on the podcast page in the blog post associated with this episode. Asha, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been such a pleasure. And listeners, now it's your turn. If you had an opportunity to amplify a specific story from your life, that you know other people have experienced and would find great comfort and inspiration in, what would that story be? Email me at sarahelkins at elkinsconsulting.com. Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile if you just smile.